This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guests on Off the Shelf are Tim Cook. Tim is the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. And Tom Sisti, who is Vice President, uh, General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. Tom also, you know, provides legal support to the CPA as well. Uh, first of all, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's good to be here. Thank you, Roger. Good morning. Uh, well, it's good to see you guys. And I can't think of two better folks to talk about what's going on on the Hill and also what's going on uh, from an acquisition policy perspective. And you know, I think we're going to, maybe we'll alternate. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But we'll start our conversation first, uh, focusing on some of the key trends of what we're seeing in uh, government-wide contracting, Tom. And I know one of the things that we recently, you know, worked on and comments were submitted on is transactional data reporting. Um, so I just want to get um, your thoughts on, uh, where it's where it stands, uh, you know, as for the listeners, um, GSA and OMB put out the notice seeking feedback on the paperwork burden of the transactional data reporting, which is the reporting of transactions uh, under your schedule contract or other GWAC type con- government wide contracts. Uh, what is the burden of it? Did GSA estimate the burden correctly? And also the uh, they actually sought public input on the utility of collecting the information and utilizing the information. And uh, coalition did submit um, a pretty consensus detailed comments uh, back to GSA on the paperwork reduction questions. Tom, can you give your sense of, you know, th- those comments and where you see TDR going? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I think to understand it, you have to put it in a little bit of context we've been dealing with TDR in some form from its nascent beginnings back in 2016. I remember it was a draft and, and, uh, and I think positions have evolved over time. You know, back then people were saying, well, what are you doing with this rule? How's the government going to use this information? Why does the government need the rule? Because it, it already has all of this transaction, transactional data, it transacted business. So, but over time, I think through the pilots and everything, it started, um, you know, it started to, you know, blossom into something different. You know, I mean, we currently, as a, as a matter of rule, I think, use basically two forms, the commercial sales practice form and the price reduction clause. And I won't go into the torture on that, but basically these are forms. One triggers uh, a price reduction uh, based on an identified uh, class of customer that would cascade to the government and so these are all efforts to assure that the government is uh, achieving the, the the appropriate price for commercial uh, products and services. I think with transactional data reporting, it focuses on data derived at the order level. And so far, so good. We've been seeing that this has given GSA a, a more robust picture of what it is it's buying. And by having that picture, 
it can assess trends in pricing over time so that um, it's not going into a very labor intensive, very process intensive activity of going in, looking at processes in the rear view mirror, essentially, because you're looking at what's been paid. You, you're in, in the transactional data stand from transactional data standpoint, you can assess it in the context of a market that is very dynamic, especially in the IT space, uh, allowing the government to really um, to plan for trends um, with this real time data. And um, it approximates uh, really a strong com- uh, component of competitive pricing. Right. So a couple of things, too, I think one, I think GSA as well, um, you know, it makes a good point that, um, you know, this data, transactional data can also be used for security purposes, cybersecurity, supply chain, um, and also management from a you know, category perspective and understanding buying trends, which I think you sort of talked about it. Do you agree with their thoughts on the, the ability to um, use this information potentially to help you know, promote and, and address and maintain sort of security, whether it's cybersecurity, you, you think 889 or whatever, um, just to be able to have that information to track if there's some sort of, um, you know, cyber incidents, knowing where the stuff is and who bought it and being able to track it using the transactional data, it seems to me a, a, a real value. And then also being able to track from a supply chain perspective where things come from. You know, I think these are... T- you know, it, it's it it serves multiple purposes that support government operations. Is that fair to say, Tom? Yeah, and I, it does so. I think with um, less labor intensity. I think when we were commenting on this, one of the things we said is, you know, years ago you'd look at the universe with a telescope, and you you study the entire universe, uh, and you'd have a, a bunch of astronomers out there doing that. Well, now we have tools up there in space. We have a, the uh, James Webb Telescope, and and it, can, it allows you the government to zoom in and focus on a given area and get much more refinement. Even though it's not using the team of astronomers, it, it, by using one tool, we now have much more refinement in the data we're collecting and get uh, and and that can add to our understanding of the universe. Same thing here using this tool, and that's all we're talking about, is uh, you're, you're now saying, wow, I can, I can look at what supply chains are. I can look at who's buying. If there's a problem within the supply chain, I can see where it has cascaded to. I don't have a, a whole of government nightmare. If I can isolate from a forensic standpoint where challenges exist. I mean, so it offers the possibility of significant improvement we tend to, I think, always focus on price. Did I get the the lowest price? You know, and, um, and and I think there's a realistic perspective on transactional data in the sense that it's it's not you're not looking for the to the decimal point lowest price here. You're looking for um, the lowest overall price. And if this tool allows you to secure secure a price without tearing um, the organizations apart looking at data constantly and walking backwards and then pulling contractor data here and here. And, and, you know, those things have costs too, which uh, could put you in the position of spending 10 to save five, if if you know what I mean. Right. It's it's really talking lowest overall cost here Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, the role that, um, 
TDR plays vis-a-vis, you know, the old model with the CSP and the PRC, which I, frankly, which I didn't know, but our crack research staff found that the PRC dates back to the 1950s, actually. That's right. I had it back to the 1980s, but, you know, but uh, so, so it's actually slightly older than me. Uh, that makes me, I guess, feel yeah, better. Emphasis I don't on know. Slightly. Slightly. Yes, of course. Absolutely. So um, we got about a minute left, Tom, and I wanted to just, um, you know, th- I think another thing that TDR does, it sort of helps break down barriers to entry for small businesses who no longer have to worry about creating a whole infrastructure to manage the price reduction clause or the CSP and that sort of stuff. You know, is that that's part and parcel of, you know, the the issue of where are we with regard to commercial item contracting? Do you agree that it does break down barriers? And secondly, you know, what's your thought on the state of commercial item contracting? Is, you know, that then the schedules is a prime, the largest commercial item contracting program in government. Well, schedules also is a large, if not the largest, one of the largest vehicles for smaller businesses to contract with the federal government. And I think you're, you're right. To the extent that you do not have to amass an infrastructure around these um, reporting requirements, you have the capacity to bring in, uh, to enter into more government contracting activity. I think that um, these the infrastructure surrounding contracting uh, can re- represent a cost hurdle for these firms uh, making it hard for them to to even pursue. And the government has said, as a matter of policy, certainly this administration has come out with executive orders wanting to uh, promote the use of um, small businesses and to ex- uh, exploit the, the talent that's there that is uh, usually on the cutting edge of innovation. Right. And uh, so I guess we're, we are up on the break. So when we come back, I'm going to ask you about the state of commercial item contracting, mm. just where you are in terms of the, you know, what I think is the, you know, decades long re-regulation of commercial item contracting. And, and Tim, we haven't forgot about you. We're going to talk, uh, we'll probably, you know, segue to some issues and talk about the Hill a little bit in the next segment as well. Um, so we start covering all the bases. My guests today are uh, Tim Cook. He's executive director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy and Tom Sisti, who is a general counsel and vice president for the Coalition for Government Procurement, also <clears> provides <throat> support to the CPA. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy and Tom Sisti, who is General Counsel, Vice President for Coalition Procurement. He also lends his support to the CPA. Um, So, um, Tom, you know, we on the break, I mentioned commercial item contracting and Fact, you were there when it was created um, back up on the hill with the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act back in 1994. Um, you know, I think it probably looks a heck of a lot or a hell of a lot different than what the originators thought it should look like and actually provided for it to look like. Can you talk about the regulatory creep? Well, I'll tell you, it's funny. That we're going back to fast because that's really, I, I think there was a lot of hope um, that you'd have an era of streamlined acquisition uh, so that the government could rapidly access uh, commercial technologies and services um, in order to meet just sort of back then the anticipated needs of a, a new century. 
And, you know, I mean, the, the law was, did set up a process uh, requiring uh, procurement officials, um, again, to the maximum extent practical to acquire those goods and services using um, commercial terms, conditions to the appropriate extent necessary, protect the government, of course, and um, to also make it easier for firms to engage with the government. It, it was a framework. And I think that what's happened as we're what, almost, where are we, 28, 27 years on, um, the steps seem to be going backward. You know, in 1995, when the statute kicked in, there were 28 FAR clauses uh, that could be included in commercial item contracts with only six of those clauses required. Today, you have something like 90, 94 clauses, in commer- including commercial contracts, and um, 34 of, of those clauses are required um, regarding uh, clauses that would flow down. Uh, in 95, there were only four. Now there are 22. Um, you know, the, and we're not even Tom talking about like the supplements to like to DFARS or like exactly. all the agencies. Like I think DOD, there's a hundred hundred potential DOD clauses approximately that could apply to commercial item contracting. Right, right. which is kind of funny because remember, if you want to go back to '84, right under SICA, the idea is we're going to have one centralized um, procurement reg, and of course, we still have implementing procurement regulation schemas. So um, it's a challenging time. And I think that when you you consider that all of the effort that went into um, the commercial acquisition reforms in FASA and in Klinger Cohen kind of had their roots in the Section 800 panel, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, notwithstanding these changes, there seems to be this pull back to the system that existed, a very process intensive system and a very regulated system generally. That is, I think, to go back to our last segment, creating barriers of entry uh, for contractors trying to do business with the government. If you don't have uh, the wherewithal to accommodate this whole administrative structure, you can't play in this market. And I think there's something that goes a little unsaid. We know that we're dealing with big numbers when the government spends money, certainly as a single entity. But I can remember, and I'm pulling, this is an old statistic now, the government doesn't represent, say in the information technology marketplace, doesn't represent the overwhelming market that it did, say, during the Cold War for technology. I mean, the commercial market is clearly the driver of of innovation outside of, say, military-specific items. And so you have to ask yourself, what are we doing to ourselves if we're foreclosing entrance of those entities into the market? And we haven't even touched on sort of the, the raw commercial vehicles like the schedules, let's say, and the challenges that those vendors face um, when the economy takes off in a direction that was unexpected. I mean, we're dealing with historic levels of inflation at this point. And um, the means for vendors who are under contract to address that inflation uh, and still provide goods and services to the government is becoming increasingly difficult. And we, I mean, we informally have been told of the many, many products that have been pulled 
from schedule because the vendors can't sell them at a loss to the federal government. Yeah, it's a um, it's a good point about the inflation in the commercial market and the government's understanding of the dynamics of the commercial market. Just one quick, you know, you could say yes or no. It seems to me, and for commercial, given the re-regulation of it, if you really want to get back to commercial item contracting, the government for those type of contracts needs to set priorities and identify what does it really need. It doesn't need all 200 of these clauses. Like, does it want trade agreements that compliant stuff? Right? Exactly. Does it want does it want Section 889 compliant stuff? And just get down to the fundamental basics and not keep layering on all these additional things that, to your point correctly, I believe, you know, limits access to the market. Now, with regard to inflation, you know, the understanding of it, I will say, you know, GSA and their policy shop has issued two different acquisition letters, you know, one in March of this year and another September, extending the March version and really streamlining the process and allowing for flexibility and granting price increases based on inflation. And that's, you know, gratifying to see. And I, I do, I have heard that GSA is doing a better job in processing mods um, and they're focusing on it, but it's still, you know, companies are still behind the eight ball a bit trying to catch up. And, you know, another area, and Tim, I turn to you on this, uh, that um, has come up is that, you know, a DOD issued a memo on, uh, inflation and price adjustments and talked about firm fixed price contracts. And a lot of those contracts outside the GSA schedule arena, because those are really long-term, do not have any kind of economic price adjustment clause in them, right? So companies are stuck and historically at prices that probably negotiated two, three years ago, and now are stuck, you know, absorbing costs that in, in some ways may affect their business, impact their business, or lead them to leave the federal market. So there, I think there's some lang- language on the Hill to try to provide in those cases for the adjustment of price without some sort of consideration since the EPA clause mechanism isn't in these firm fixed price contracts, at least on the DOD side. Is there? Can you tell us a little bit about that and where that is? Yes, thank you, Roger. So the the good news is that there is a provision um, currently in the NDA that is under consideration um, that will be considered when the Congress returns after the election and in the lame duck session. Their hope is to deal with that issue and the NDAA uh, writ large uh, before the end of December. And as you said, it, it addresses that issue, and um, in talking with folks on the Hill and talking to other um, members of CPA, there's also some uh, some requests to to possibly consider this for civilian <laughs> agencies. Although uh, right now the provision really is for just DoD. Right, it's and it seems to me, and I'll open up to both of you guys, is that in a certain sense, I I think it's about you know being penny wise is a pound foolish, right? If you if we, you know the concern in the writing and everything we see these days is studies of the industri- defense industrial base, the DIB, and that it's getting smaller, and that also within that context, there's less small businesses doing business with DOD and the federal government in general. Well, this you can point to this kind of you know this is obviously right. It's unprecedented. We had ten years, a day more than a decade of low inflation, so we get hit it with it, and you know it's not anybody's fault in the sense of planning to ensure the contracts included in an EPA clause. It's just where we are. So mm-hmm. if we want to kind of maintain the defense industrial base, 
it is about, in a certain sense, as a customer making investments. And this would be an area where um, it may, it makes seems to me makes sense at least providing the flexibility for the department and potentially civilian agencies to com- to consider you know the in modifying these contracts. Any thought? Any closing thoughts for this segment? Well, I I can say this. I mean, it is not a healthy place to be to have your defense industrial base torqued. Okay, you need that base. And you have to recognize its economic realities. The industrial base has alternatives. They can sell through different channels, even to the government, if you think about it. And it does no one any good to chase them to these alternate channels rather than to rationally uh, and, and methodically address the challenges that are being faced on a specific product or service basis to assure the continuity that you need. Your adversaries uh, likely are not going through this administrative process burden uh, when addressing especially the defense needs of their countries. Right. So, and on that, we're going to end the segment. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion of, and Tim, we're going to turn, talk a little bit more about day-to-day operations on the Hill where things are, the schedule moving forward. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's the Executive Director at the Center for Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti, General Counsel, Vice President for the Coalition of Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's the Executive Director of the Center for Procurement Advocacy. Tom Sisti is... Vice President, General Counsel of the Coalition for Government Procurement. He also provides legal support to CPA. And uh, Tim, uh, the segment I want to concentrate more focus on what's going on on the Hill. And, you know, first of all, um, there's a lot of moving parts right now on the calendar, what's going to happen or not happen, and continuing resolutions, the omnibus. I always have a hard time saying that. Uh, you know, debt ceiling, maybe next year, all kind of nominations, all kinds of things all moving all at once. And we have the midterms as well coming up and what comes out of that and what the implications of the election on all this timing. So first of all, like, where are we on the continuing resolution? Thank you, Roger. Um, yes, on the continuing resolution, um, it currently it goes until uh, midnight on the 16th of December. That's Friday. Um in my discussions with folks on the Hill, um, that's really an action-forcing deadline that they're shooting for. But they made it on the 16th because there is uh, another week before Christmas. And it might be that they come close to full negotiations on the appropriations to keep the government running. But they don't make the date of the 16th. And then there's a possibility that they could extend that CR for another week to the 23rd, which is the next Friday after that. Roger, I don't, I don't see that the Congress wants or is planning on any kind of a shutdown. Of course, in my world with congressional affairs, uh, two months is a long time. But they really want to try to wrap up this year's work in the appropriations and also in the authorization with the NDAA so that when the new Congress is sworn in, the 118th Congress is sworn in on January 3rd, they can head right to the business of the new Congress and work on uh, 
FY24 and for the appropriations and authorizations and the other important things that they have to deal with. Yes. And it's so, so let's say, so what, what I think I heard there too, is that don't necessarily despair if they get to the 16th and they have to do another continuing resolution. That may mean that they're actually close to resolving things and they just need a little bit more time to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I, and I believe that um, because they do want to finish this, many members are retiring. And again, they want to start the new Congress fresh that you know, they could end up working maybe the week after Christmas if they needed to, or maybe the last best scenario would be that they could have a CR into next year. We've all experienced that over the last uh, 20 years and then uh, have the new Congress have to deal with it after the, after they're sworn in on the third. So so right now, I think we're we're on steady ground to get the work done without a government shutdown. Yes, Tom. Well, no, I totally agree with, with what Tim is saying, but you know, I, I we shouldn't be happy, right, that the government is working in in continuing resolution mode. I mean, there are real challenges to running a government on a continuing resolution. We we've been doing it so much that we've lost sight of the fact that this is a real interruption to program performance. I mean, uh, the the agencies can't make um, under CR are funded at last year's funding level unless specifically authorized otherwise. They have um, they don't have the capacity to engage in new starts. It is not a prime way to run a country. Right. I mean, I, I, I can't disagree with you, but as can't we sort of say like history over the last few years is this is the way we run the country. This right? is the business that we chose. Right, right. So, um, so Tim, um, you know, where are we with done with the NDAA? What, how's the process look for that? Thank you, Roger. So, um, the House did their work previously on the NDAA, um, and now the Senate has released their rendition of the NDAA. And if your <laughs> listeners want to look at it, uh, maybe the easiest way to find it is in the congressional record. Um, it, the whole NDAA was printed on uh, October, it's the October 11th congressional record, and um, it's hundreds of pages long, but you can go through and see the index and then go to the different provisions and look at them. Just like we talked in the last session about uh, economic adjustments, that's provision 5812, and you could look at that. So just be advised, though, that this is the Senate's rendition of this and that the next thing that'll have to happen is the house and the senate will have to have a conference to make their bills exactly the same so um that is undergoing right now in a in a very informal basis by the staffs talking about what is the house really focused on what is the senate really focused on and how can we get to agreement so that when they do come back they can have some floor time to debate it and pass it in the senate side and then get it over to the house and then have the house pass it. Uh, so there's one bill that's passed and then that becomes the NDAA and it'll go to the president's desk. And then almost immediately, Roger, we're going to start talking about the next fiscal year and what we need to put in that NDAA because um, by uh, February, March, uh, April, they're going to have already had multiple hearings about this and they'll be starting the next NDAA. So there's no rest for, for their, uh, legislation and, and it'll be a new congress too um it it appears 
And of course, uh, the, the election's only a week away and I am not a prognosticator of how it's gonna turn out. But if, uh, as of this afternoon, it looks like maybe the Republicans um, have a better sh chance of uh, taking over the House and that maybe the Senate is much, much too close to call and we won't know either on election night or maybe some weeks after. So you'll have to stay tuned to your radio show to get the latest and greatest. Yes. Yeah, so if I understand right on the NDAA, instead of the House passes this version, the Senate passes this version, and they go into conference, come up with one bill, then they have to go back and pass it in both houses. This time what they're doing is kind of informally trying to work it out pre-conference and get it done in the Senate. So everybody's in agreement, get the Senate to pass it, send it back to the House, have the House pass it. Is that saving time and effort? Is that fair to say? Absolutely, Roger. That's the plan right now. And yep. and they hope to execute that plan and have this thing passed before, um, as we mentioned, before the uh, CR expires so that, that this will be done. And then they'll do the, the uh, omnibus appropriations, which will replace the CR. The government will be funded. Uh, until next October 1st, and uh, they'll be able to work on the new issue agendas of the new Congress. You know, just in terms of process going on right now as we go, like you see, you mentioned, you know, the election's a week away. You know, then it's going to be a lame duck Congress, and then we're going to have a new Congress, whatever it looks like. Is there, are there other moving parts, you know, based on your experience working up there, Tim, that, you know, sort of go under the radar that, you know, actually make a big difference or people, you know, are thinking about up there? Absolutely, Roger. I think that, um, you know, elections are watched very closely and based on the uh, ratios of win, won and loss in both the House and the Senate, um, that will really uh, kind of dictate what the agenda of Congress can be in its, in its new session. And um, I would say if you have uh, more of a differential between Republicans and Democrats, then your agenda is is kind of limited and you need to do the work of the Congress. But if there is a, a large differential between the House and, and the, you know, the seats in the Senate and the House, then maybe the agenda will move in a in, in more of a direction of one party than the other. But um, the great news is that the lawmakers really understand that they have to get the work done with the appropriations and and with the authorization. And one thing that's looming and it's not imminent. But the debt ceiling issue and how we will next extend the debt ceiling and to at what level. And that could probably happen as, as early as the middle of next year. And, of course, the debt ceiling is uh, it deals with how the government pays their bills in what order. It would be uh, catastrophic for the financial markets if the debt ceiling wasn't extended. Uh, but in the context of government contracting, it has to do with. Uh, which bills the government pays first. And that's much different than if you if a CR expires and the government has to shut down. So I always like to make sure that people understand the subtle nuances of that. Right. Um, you know, I guess until a certain point that you, where you formally fully, you know, get to that debt ceiling, you know, spending the money, then you do have to stop, I would assume, right? So but anyway, so, hey, that's that's great. We're up on the break already. When we come back, we can talk a little bit more about some of the specific interesting issues you guys are working on from a procurement policy perspective. 
Uh, my guests today are Tim Cook. He's the executive director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. And Tom Sisti, general counsel, vice president for Coalition Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today are Tim Cook. He's the executive director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. And Tom Sisti, who is general counsel, vice president for the coalition. He also provides legal support to the CPA. Um, and this segment, guys, I want to talk about something that, you know, is always in the conversation these days. Um, I guess you could even relate it back to the indes- defense industrial base is who makes that up. And I'm thinking about supply chain management, supply chain risk management, um, domestic preference, um, all those kind of things. And, um, you know, Tom, I guess I'm going to turn to you from a big picture, sort of from between what the executive branch has done and what Congress is looking at. Yeah, what are some of the key takeaways? Well, um, this is almost stating the obvious, but there's concern about what we've been calling uh, the coalition of the crinks, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Just the concern does not wane at all. Uh, We're addressing it because of their intense activity in in cyber actions against networks. Um, There's also, uh, with respect to Russia, you've got the activity in Ukraine, so those are, are, are sort of big, big, big picture uh, drivers here. There's, um, but there's definitely an increasing awareness of uh, sourcing um, for manufacturing purposes and how that could result in presence in systems. And I think you have to go back. If you, uh, anybody who attended our conferences in the spring, um, there's a focus on this this uh, concept on, for the government, from the government standpoint, on enduring advantage in the face of a great power competition. We, we're confronting these asymmetric engagements from, to a great extent, China and others. Um, they know the data that we rely on, and that's the data they want. They know where it is. So it expands, I think, the cyber focus, if you will, of the government to um, platform components, not just platforms. So if you think of it like a, a, a castle and a moat, it, it's, it's, uh, we're moving beyond the moat and saying, okay, what's inside the castle? Who's in what room? Who's in the dungeon? Whatever. Um, the idea is that uh, the government's taking a greater and greater interest in, in what's being laid into the platforms. Um, and it's, it's starting to recognize that it, it can't act statically, say, okay, here's a regulation, you're going to follow it, now we're good. It has to be dynamic because the threat is dynamic. People are constantly evolving new uh, bases, if you will, to come in and attack the nation. So there's a renewed fo- focus on um, controlled but unclassified information that's on contractor networks. There's this desire to protect beyond what might can be considered a product's life cycle, because we all know from practice that things don't just pop in and pop out on, on a rigorous schedule. It'd be nice, but it doesn't always happen. Um, I think the evolution of CMMC is going to play into, is must play into this. Um, do I need to, well, let me just say, I mean, for those who have not been following it, there's um this is a way to to certify um, components and systems 
and it was required for DOD contractors. The idea was it would be required for DOD contractors at the time of award. Um, uh, and it would be required even if you did not have controlled unclassified information in your system. Um, and we're talking about federal, federal contractor information, which is provided by or generated by the government under a contract or controlled unclassified information. Again, this is information um, uh, that requires safeguarding, but is not necessarily a top secret classification or something like that. And the, that the systems would be assessed by these things called third party assessment organizations. Well, that was when it, that was phase one, phase two came out uh, at the end of last year. And, um, and phase two has reduced it down to three levels, if you will, from five. Yes. And you have, um, you know, a, a threshold level, level one, uh, which is um, sort these are progressing in ter- progressive in terms of security level one would be um, uh, foundational. You would have some self certification, right? Yes, self certification. Right. Second level two would be this third party auth- um, uh, review authority, and third three would be the basically an expert level assessment um, that. Um, would probably be required by the go- and performed by the government. So um, right. looking and at that'd this, be like it, probably weapon systems, perhaps, yeah, and other things that relate directly. Exactly. To, yeah. Um, so uh, so the idea is to try and walk away from unique security practices, but you know the devil's in the details and the implementation of this stuff. Um, so they're going to be the. There's been, uh, I think, a release of a pre-decisional document um, for assessing the third-party review process. That's the level two. Um, has four fa- phases to that: planning and preparation for the assessment, uh, conducting the assessment, reporting out results, and then closing it out. So in and out, real quick. The the question is: Does this add more burden to a process that's already complex? You know, you've got DOD with 70,000 plus companies in its industrial base in some level, at some level. And they're going to be subject to level two, that, you know, that process. Um, right. Well, they don't have the capability right now to yeah. do all those assessments. And then I think, if I recall correctly, our, you know, we, we sub, the coalition submitted comments on it. And, you know, the, the concern is that it's a high, that guide for assessors and how they're going to do that level two assessment of these 70,000 companies is right. like highly prescriptive, you know, provide a very um, formulaic, uh, highly process driven. It doesn't provide, you know, sort of the subjectivity or the judge- ability to make judgments about firms that are in different positions and do different things than other firms. It's just going to create greater, I think, burdens and also potential bottlenecks, you know, with regard to the whole thing. I think it's kind of fair to say, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, I think I think so. I think we 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 have to get this. We have to get this addressed fast because I mean, I, again, it's always a comparison to to what you're up against, and and other nations, certainly the adversary nations may are not. They can act with more draconian deliberation on this. But what this does offer is the potential for uh, the government to revisit this notion of. Uh, just simply looking to ourselves. We have an ILI network, um, and there are many benefits to focusing on buying allied, if you will, amongst ourselves. First, 
it takes away or at least mitigates the incentive for allies to turn to um, sources or partners that may not be pleasing to us, right, in, in the greater performance of contracts. So it, it kind of cuts off that chain. At the same time, it strengthens the bonds between us as we're trying to um, utilize technology and, and go forward and address our common security interests. Right. So, and uh, Tim, I just wanted to give you the last word. So just on this buy America versus buy allied sort of approach that Tom was just mentioning, you know, as a segue from CMMC discussion, um, you know, what's the sense on the Hill? Is it moving to a more, you know, buy allied uh, approach? Um, And is that kind of a bipartisan sort of perspective or is it, you know, still very focused on, you know, you know, by America, but what's your no, sense? Roger, I, I think it's uh, it's one of the top issues, especially for the defense policymakers and those also in um, in the other spaces dealing with homeland issues. That um, microchips and microprocessors most definitely uh, pose a threat, not only because there could be a shortage, but also um, if there's something in them that could um, cause a system to malfunction or be um, manipulable. Um, so this is a top priority and you see that, uh, mentioned in the NDA in several different locations. Right. So more to come on that as we look forward to, uh, to what comes at, what the final NDA looks like and hopefully what they can, you know, work out the spending packages and get this all wrapped up. And we start a new year and with a new Congress, just focusing on new work and not the old work. So anyway, I want to thank my guest today. Tom Sisti, he's the Vice President and General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement, and Tim Cook, who is the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. You're the one who protects the flock, and that requires an eye for detail. Because when safety and well-being are on the line, it's the details that can save lives. Even when no one else is watching, you see everything. Granger gets you, and we're here for you, and all the ones who get it done with a wide range of safety products and solutions, plus board-certified safety consultants here to answer your questions. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.